Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. I'm sorry about the sharks. I'll survive. They're not really my team anyway. I just kind of like them because I happen to live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I know a lot of Sharks fans. Yeah, I know, but I was, I was just kind of voting for them anyway because I also know a lot of uh, Shark fans. Really? How do you know so many Sharks fans? Uh, basically, when someone from that area finds out I'm from Toronto, they ask me, like, oh, do you like hockey? Because uh, a lot of the Sharks fans I find are, like, really dedicated to their, their pursuits. Yeah, you have to be dedicated to be a, sh- uh, a Sharks fan, given that they are the one of the most minimized teams in the San Francisco Bay Area, sadly, because they are based in San Jose and also hockey. <laughs> and also hockey. Yeah, that's really a shame. It happens a lot. That's probably why you probably get a lot of hockey tourists in that area. That is, people who from Canada who make it a point to go down and, and see games in American cities, uh, like my brother who takes a tour every year to see the Hurricanes in North Carolina. There are a lot of expats down in San Jose, so they end up going to the hockey games as well. But that's not to say that San Jose doesn't love the Sharks. I would say that when a sh- on Sharks game day, downtown San Jose is definitely hopping uh, to the extent that that matters because San Jose is not a big city. <laughs> but <laughs> And the downtown area is not that great. Sorry, fans of San Jose. <laughs> I speak only the truth. I've never been to San Jose. Yeah, there's not really a good reason to go, except for Sharks games. Yeah, except when they, the Sharks like are worthy doing something worthy of celebrating. So, Nadia, how goes your journey through Trails of Cold Steel? Uh, it goes quite well. I don't know if you've seen some of my tweets uh, about Trails of Cold Steel. I'm actually, um, I think I'm in Chapter 3 or 4. I can't remember which one precisely, but uh, I do know that I am angry that I can't join a club. I notice this game has a lot in common with Persona, except you cannot join a club even though they're you're in this like really posh academy that has so many like cool clubs like oh here's a literature club where there's this character who's writing like yaoi fan fiction and there's like i want to join the riding club which is like you know has all these great horses and stuff and no you can't join any clubs you got to do you got to do stupid tasks on your free day instead of enjoying yourself well you're busy with being a in a military academy no no time to join a drama club or whatever (laughs) no drama club no band uh, even though these clubs do exist within the universe, you can't join them because you suck. No one wants you. <laughs> so are you enjoying it? Yes, I am, actually, very much so. Uh, it is a bit repetitive, which is something, a criticism that has been lobbed at the game several times, and it, it is definitely warranted because uh, the game tells its story through uh, kind of repeated tasks that you carry out month after month, which is fine, but uh, it is definitely repetitive. But I think the characters and the story is fun enough that you know, I'm I'm fine with that, and the battle system is also pretty interesting, so it, it carries it through easily. I had an underhanded reason for giving you Trails of Cold Steel. Oh, do you now? Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we had somebody on staff who could reasonably cover that series whenever a new game came out. <laughs> yeah, I think um, 4 is coming out, and of course, I think 3 is being, lo- it's still being localized, it should be out soon. I have no beef with Trails of Cold Steel, but it never really spoke to me personally. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to cover because I think that those games kind of demand a lot of detail uh, right. and a detailed understanding of what's happening because they're so uh, story focused and story heavy and that kind of thing. Yeah. So. And it's definitely like uh, it follows the same characters throughout the series. Whereas even the E series, yes, you have Adol and you have. Uh, dogi but um everyone else is new every single time whereas the trail series as far as i can tell you have the same characters over and over again so you're following them like kind of like almost like a book series like a novel series which is fine i like that sort of thing in a in a game or a novel anyway congratulations you get to play trails of cold steel forever now (laughs) (laughs) don't forget you're here forever your soul doth belong to this game they should hang that over the uh, the, uh, the Thor's Academy. Don't forget, you're here forever. In the meantime, I have hit an important milestone in my life, Nadia. Uh-huh. I managed to get past the Don Corneo stage in Final Fantasy VII. All right, the worst is over. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I keep trying to talk to people about this, but they keep like looking at me in a way that suggests that they don't really want to talk about Final Fantasy VII. So since you're my captive audience... You get to listen to me talk about Final Fantasy VII, Nadia. Well, anybody who doesn't want to talk about Final Fantasy VII isn't your friend. I've been really enjoying Midgar. 
I think it is one of the richest and most beautiful settings in RPG history. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you there. It's something, as we've covered in the past, uh, just playing the game over again on the Switch has made me realize just how much work went into went into Medgar, how how distinctive it is, and how every, like I said, every room literally tells its own story. I kind of love the wall market now, where, mm. so, so I'm trying to get Cloud dressed up as a girl. Right. And it's pitched as cloud always wanted to be a girl so therefore we're going to get him a a dress or something and give him a night on the town or something to that effect yeah Yeah, no beef with that but there's a bit where they're they realize that he needs a wig and he is directed to go to the gym where there are a lot of people quote like him yeah i remember that suggesting that there are a lot of gay queens over at the local gym in the wall market yeah, and as I recall correctly, the leader, who's this little, you know, tiny thing, can just, can beat anyone's ass. Above the gym, there are just three kanjis, which are all of the male symbol. <laughs> <laughs> See, I didn't know that. <laughs> which is just to drive it all home, right? So, right, just in case you don't get it. So, there's a, there are a lot of visual gags in mm-hmm. there and people might roll their eyes slightly at the kind of outdated humor with the uh, gay individuals but there's no gay panic they're just there they're gay you know yeah pretty much they, they're gay and they like to work out i mean who doesn't yeah no kidding it reminded me of uh, gold's gym over in the castro here in san francisco it's like <laughs> oh man they have their own gold's gym in the wall market so that's but pretty great I, I love seeing all of the the little details and all the backgrounds, which I never really noticed before until until now. Also, I like Aerith now. Oh, you like Aerith, eh? Yeah, she's she's fun. She's kind of spicy. She uh, she's feisty. She's willing to kind of punch back. She's got a funny sense of humor. She does have. I realize that when replaying it, she does have a bit of a sense of humor. She doesn't take herself too seriously, which is actually. I have to give credit to Square Enix. Usually when you have, like, kind of a, a last survivor, half-breed race, like, in a RPG, they usually take themselves very, very seriously, Terra. Yeah, her archetypal character is the extremely demure girl, and instead I would categorize uh, Aerith as re- really energetic and kind of a fun character, and so I've, I've really come around to her in my current playthrough and also she's very cute in that red dress when she's in don corneo's mansion (laughs) she does wear that dress quite well actually i also like that she has a lot of agency and she spearheads a lot of the different plans uh that are happening especially in the early going of the game Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i i find her a fairly sympathetic and well-developed female character which is not an easy thing to find in rpgs of this era yeah i guess you're right about that and um, when things go bad, uh, I do kind of appreciate the fact that, you know, she knows Cloud is kind of incapable of anything. So she's the one who takes point on the whole saving the world thing. And she knows what she has to do, even though it's probably kind of terrifying. And I know the Jesus allegory is very much in your face in Final Fantasy VII, but I don't know. It just works. I also posted this on Twitter. I'm looking forward to Aerith leaning forward in beautiful 4K and telling Don Corneo that she's going to rip his balls off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's going to be pretty great. And uh, I think, like, Tifa said, she's going to smash it. I can't believe that scene was in this game. Seriously, this this PlayStation RPG that came out in 1997, no wonder people were so like, oh, my God. You know, it wasn't just Barrett going, God damn it. It was this stuff, you know? Yeah, the thing that that's funny to me also is that um, they originally, I think they changed that translation, and someone here has to back me up on this because I don't know for certain, but I could have sworn in my original version of the game, Cloud says, like, for example, I'll cut them off, referring to his balls, whereas in the new translation, he says, I'll cut it off, referring, I guess, to his dick, which I don't know how that's better or worse, but it's what they've done. Answer, it's not. <laughs> After you escape from the sewers in a fairly perfunctory little bit, uh, it's rather beautiful running through the train gra- graveyard. The music there is perfect. Pretty simple as dungeons go, and one of the big criticisms of Final Fantasy VII is that it doesn't really have any dungeons, certainly not compared to Final Fantasy VI. But it is so atmospheric and gorgeous that I can't really fault it. Yeah, um, I love the train gra- uh, graveyard. Uh, I also love the abandoned mining tracks that you travel on your way to North Corel 
And uh, I love the, you won't get to this for a long time, hopefully you stick to it that long, but the, the windy maze at the top of the northern crater, that's a, mm. that's a really kind of haunting sort of place. And then there's the bit where you walk into Eris's house and meet her mom again um, mm-hmm. after she's been taken by Shinra. Right. And I really enjoyed the way that they handled the storytelling where the, the screen was going down, it was going yes. across, the camera was panning in such a way to reveal the passage of time. And I think it really worked from a storytelling standpoint. Yeah, that was a very, very sort of inspired design choice. And I'm not afraid to admit that I still cry at that scene every single time I see it. Oh, yeah, no, I think it works really well. But I am now at the, I am now in Shinra headquarters. (laughs) I've been enjoying climbing to the top of Shinra headquarters to the extent that you could call it a dungeon. I guess guess it's a dungeon because there are like puzzles and things like that. And it definitely feels like the first season finale, right? Where It does, yeah. Yeah, because Aerith has been taken and you're going to, uh, you're trying to rescue her and everything. And you're going up to the top of this extremely tall tower. And I, I love all of the the detail once again in the Shinra headquarters, like weird things like, oh, there's a cafeteria and here's the corporate gym. Yes, I love the corporate gym. That's apparently only accessible to high level employees because it's above the like 59th floor. You have to be like a B type employee to get to the gym. Wow, what kind of BS is that? It's Shinra BS, obviously. I also like that when you're riding up the elevator, it keeps stopping and this guy keeps going, oh, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) See, I took the stairs when I last played. That's why I asked if you took the stairs. But I forgot that um, there is that sequence if you take the elevator that uh, kind of uh, spills you on on, like random floors. That's a little bit freaky if you're a little bit anxious about elevators. I've also complained a little bit about how they're turning it into an action game for the remake. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more action components in this one than, say, even Final Fantasy VI, just to the extent of things like kind of slight platforming and or traversal puzzles where you have to uh, swing across the chasm on the rope while you're trying to climb to the top of Shinra, which, by the way, is another great sequence. Yeah, that sequence is great, but the, the part where you have to jump for the rope without really knowing where you're going to land, that's a pain in the ass a little bit. That is a total pain in the ass, and it doesn't work extremely well, but it shows what they were trying to do with this game, which is to make it more than a kind of a menu-based game. That and that stupid dolphin. <laughs> I just went through the bit in Shinra headquarters where you have to stealth your way past all the guards. Oh, fuck. Yeah. So you not only stealth your way past the guards, then you have to wave Tifa and Barrett over. <laughs> Very annoying. <laughs> I got to the point where the game actually took pity on me. because oh, really? Yeah, because you get caught, and then you have to fight, and then it goes all the way back. The, the re- encounter completely resets. And then yes. after failing like four times and getting kind of annoyed, the game finally was like, screw it, just go. <laughs> <laughs> screw it, running everyone. So this isn't quite a Final Fantasy VII report, but I, I've i been playing Final Fantasy VII lately, so I wanted to share to my listeners like some of the n- new observations I've been making, having not seriously played this game in a solid 15 years or so. Yeah, you should keep on sharing. I can always talk about Final Fantasy VII. I have no ways to run out of topics about Final Fantasy VII. Okay, so other things that we are going to be talking about on this podcast, we're going to go through some news, and then we're going to continue on our console RPG quest, Nadia, which includes Mm -hmm. two consoles this time around, the Sega Master System, and if you want to include the third, the SG-1000, and the Game Gear, and we'll be talking about all of the, well, interesting RPG history around those two particular consoles, and of Mm -hmm. course we'll be doing the mailbag. If you enjoy the podcast, you should subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. And if you like it, please leave a review because that helps our visibility. And you should subscribe to our newsletter. Nadia, what was the topic of this week's newsletter? Uh, the topic of this week's newsletter was, which RPG do you wish you could play again for the first time? And that's actually a loaded question with a lot of answers, but my number one pick is Undertale. Because that is a game that is so emotionally powerful, but it's really only so mu- it's really only meant to be played one time through or three times through if you count doing all three uh, story points in the game. 
Uh, and just how, I know like all RPGs have that like initial power that obviously depletes after you're, you finish it for the first time. But Undertale, given that it's not a very long game and there's not really much replay value to be had once you're done with the story points, uh, I just feel like that I'd love to just kind of erase my memory to that point and uh, and go back and experience it all again and just, you know, those funny jokes and hearing all the music for the first time and uh, getting the crap scared out of me by Flowey. And yeah, that's that's my uh, that's my choice. My answer is kind of cliche, I, I should say. Um, I mm. think that my choice would be Pokemon. Oh, the very first one, like Blue? And no, Pokemon in general, I think. Mm-hmm. Because I still remember... the. So what hooked me on the original Pokemon, Pokemon Red, back in 1998 when it first came out, was this feeling uh, that I had the first time I picked my own Pokemon. And you get to... Mm-hmm. You, having the choice is just masterful right being able to choose which one you want to take with you stepping out into the world with your new pal that you got to name for the first time and then the moment where professor oak goes oh your charmander seems to really like you it's a it's a kind of a little trick but it worked it so worked on me so i felt like i was exploring the world and discovering all of these monsters for the very first time like the first time that I was in Brock's gym and I saw the Onyx and I was mm. shocked by the size of it and it was terrifying compared to my little Charmander, right? Or <laughs> when I went and fought Misty in the second gym and I was fighting a Starmie and I'm like, how do I even get past this thing, right? So there's so many wonderful surprises the first time you're playing a Pokemon game. If you're not hyper familiar with the world, and I would say that I'm rather familiar with the pokemon world these days mm-hmm. it doesn't feel rote it doesn't feel like i've done it all before so i i kind of i kind of crave that with pokemon these days yeah that's understandable uh and it's funny that you you mentioned the whole how impactful choosing your first starter is because uh i feel like the first game was just such a so powerful such a choice that we it's still embedded in pop culture uh, I don't know. Have you ever heard of like uh, parents who have like Pokemon choosing parties for their babies? They put like Charmander, Bulbasaur, and Squirtle stuffies on the floor, and then the baby crawls over to the one they choose. Wow, Western culture must be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> it only must be stopped if they choose Squirtle as their starter. Oh come on, Squirtle's all right. Squirtle's okay, yeah. Squirtle was. Really I'm a I'm movie. a big Charmander fan though, so. Me too. Yeah, and I think that the first Pokemon that you ever pick is really momentous because I think that so many Pokemon fans they always remember the first starter ever, right? Yeah, they always remember the first starter, and then some of us reset the game when like uh, Gary chose the uh, obvious foil, <laughs> and we didn't realize. <laughs> okay, he's just gonna do it anyway. Gary's such a jerk. Seriously. Gary is a dork. So, Nadia, you said that you got some responses to this particular newsletter. Do you want to share them with us? Okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm really sorry if I mispronounce your name, which I am totally going to. Jero uh, Cornelio, uh, very sorry about that, said, uh, Mine is probably Persona 4. It left such a huge impression on me that I wanted to replay it without knowing anything. I guess he means, like, uh, I wanted to replay it again without, like, remembering uh, certain story twists that we shall remain nameless. William Tucker writes to me, I would love another Zero for Knowledge run with the original Fallout. It was, for me, the perfect interactive version of a dystopian post-apocalyptic world. The skill system, combat, and dialogue trees were substantial enough to keep you alert and support multiple playthroughs, even while avoiding unnecessary feature creep. Fallout is surprisingly concise in terms of its story, yet dense with play options. In my mind, it was almost as smooth, as smooth of a ride as Chrono Trigger in terms of pure entertainment value. Meanwhile, back in reality, the world actually more resembles a never-ending replay of Final Fantasy VII, an out-of-control eco-disaster aided and abetted by fascist governments captured by greedy corporate dynasties living in denial of how they are rapidly making the human species irrelevant to the continued existence of the planet. Hopefully, the live stream will bail us out and meet space as well as the virtual realm of the PS1 emulation software, legal, and hardware purchased at full recommended price. One lives in hope. Yeah, when I heard about this topic for this newsletter, I think that Persona 4 was one that definitely jumped into my mind because there's such a great twist at the end. And Mm -hmm. it's a really great 
feeling to kind of get to know all of the different characters in that game. And Fallout, of course, I mean, who can forget the first time that you step out of the the vault and the wasteland spreads out be- before you in a way that just invites exploration, right? Yeah, exactly. So I I think it's a good topic. I think a lot of uh, had some good responses to it. Uh, a lot of people interacting with me over it. And uh, yeah, thank you everyone for reading my newsletter. Yeah, you should subscribe to the newsletter, and also you should follow us on Twitter at the underscore cap off for me and Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Okay, so continuing on really quickly with a couple of news items. One of them, and this was a an interview with our sister site video game chronicles game freak said that they are continuing to prioritize original development and i feel like that the story was slightly misinterpreted by some people as to say that game freak was prioritizing original development over pokemon which i don't necessarily think is the case no i can't see game freak doing that uh i think game freak and to their and I totally agree with them on this one. I think it just wants to be acknowledged a little bit more for the stuff that isn't Pokemon. And I agree with them, like I said, because uh, they do some great stuff outside of Pokemon that just doesn't get th- this sort of leverage it should. Well, I think there are two things. One is they want another... Fr- I think they would love another franchise that's every bit as big as Pokemon, right? Oh, God, yeah. Of course. And then I think the other thing is, you know, you work on Pokemon so many times, you just start to get stagnant and that kind of thing. And so I think it helps to try out new concepts and that sort of thing in games like Pocket Card Jockey and, I guess, Tumbo the Badass Elephant. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't played the Badass Elephant game, but of course I did play the hell out of Pocket Card Jockey. Man, that game was so good, Nadia. I love that game. It's one of the best sports games I've ever played. The other article I wanted to highlight really quickly, Nadia, is Mike's WoW Classic versus Modern WoW article in which he rolled up a new character in both versions and described Mm. his experience in detail. If you care anything about World of Warcraft, I strongly recommend reading it because it's pretty enjoyable. Uh, He rolled up a rogue, and it took about four hours to get to level 10 versus about two hours in Modern WoW. And actually, Mike thought that it would be even less time. So he, he said he was talking about how there are like lots of quality of life changes and everything and how different it is uh, in a way it's actually in wow classic there's something beautiful about just being able to run across the world as opposed to you know fast traveling and that kind of thing not having mm-hmm. ha- not having any waypoints on your map to be able to find items and locations and that sort of thing but he also said it gets old fast <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that being the case. Actually, um, it's funny when I saw him publish that thing, almost as soon as he did it, uh, Ragnarok Online, which uh, I mentioned has a, a classic mode, they announced, yeah, we're shutting down our classic mode. <laughs> <laughs> there will always be people who play WoW Classic, though. I mean, the reason WoW Classic exists is because a bunch of fans created a server specifically to play WoW. <laughs> Nostalgia is king, right? Okay, that's enough for RPG news. It's time to move on to our main topic, which is the discussion of the console RPG legacy of the Master System and the Game Gear. So don't go away. Not a... Did you ever get a chance to play a Sega Master System? Uh, I did not play a Sega Master System. Um, I don't even think I saw one in the wild or at a friend's house. Uh, there was always that one weird kid who had a TurboGrafx-16 in the schoolyard, but there was never even one single weirdo with a Sega Master System. That's how rare <laughs> it was. Yeah, I don't remember seeing a Sega Master System at all. I think it was a little past our time, as it were. Uh, it always felt like a bit of a myth. I heard about it. <laughs> After the Sega Genesis came out, but... After, yes. I had never seen it anywhere. That's because, you know, I was a little bit younger, so as a consequence, I didn't remember the 80s all that well. So I I feel like I didn't really become... I don't feel like I really became aware of video games until maybe 1989, 1990, so... Yeah, so it definitely would have been past your time, but even so, I remember the 80s very well, and uh, I don't remember i I mean it's one of those games one of those systems you hear about but uh you never really see at least in our neck of the woods what about the game gear uh game gear yes i had a couple of friends with the game gear 
and I had a, uh, a friend of the family who had a Game Gear, and I played, I think it was the infamously bad Sonic the Hedgehog 2 adaptation on the Game Gear, and it wasn't bad because it was a bad game. It was actually quite good on the uh, Sega Master System, which a lot of uh, Game Gear games were ports of, but the diminished screen size made it very hard to avoid the uh, a lot of the bosses in that game, and so I couldn't really get past that first boss because I, I literally couldn't see any of the attacks before they came and hit me and killed me. Yeah, I also played Sonic the Hedgehog 2 on the Master System, or not the Master System, the Game Gear. I don't remember <clears throat> it extremely well. My main recollection of the Game Gear is borrowing it from a friend and playing it over the weekend. I think I played a lot of Streets of Rage 2 on it and having the batteries die on me constantly, like within an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was not gentle on batteries. We're talking about like six AA batteries that might last you a couple hours. I also remember weirdo things like the TV tuner. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever see it in play? No, I didn't. But I did watch a video about it because I found it so weirdly fascinating. It, yeah, it, it was always a very weirdly fascinating thing to look at in catalogs and stuff. And back when we shopped through catalogs. And I remember it would show, like, uh, the TV tuner had, like, this, you know, crystal clear image of a football game or something. And, of course, you realize now there's no way that wasn't, like, just copied and pasted over something. Yeah, no kidding. Anyway, so the Sega Master System was not Sega's first 8-bit console. That was actually the SG-1000, released in 1983, on the same day as the Famicom. The problem was, the Famicom was quite a bit further ahead from the Intellivision and the Atari and all that, whereas the SG-1000 was closer to the ColecoVision. (laughs) Yeah, if you're being generous about it, it was uh, not a particularly powerful system. No, but it did have one notable RPG in 1984, and that was the Black Onyx, and it was developed by somebody quite famous. It was Hank Rogers, who you might know as the person who partnered with Alexei Pajitinov and Nintendo to bring uh, Tetris over to North America. He had a developer called Bulletproof Software, and he made this game. It helped start the process, I suppose, of popularizing RPGs, or at least introducing RPGs to Japanese audiences. Yeah, it predated Dragon Quest by a couple years, and it came out on a lot of systems, including the MSX and the Game Boy Color, Uh, But it's a lot more of a Western RPG than your traditional JRPG. It's a five-member dungeon crawler, and your goal is to obtain the legendary sword, the Black Onyx. And then do what with it? I don't know, kill things with it? I don't know. Look at it. I mean, think about Redwall, where Matthias is trying to get hold of Martin the Warrior's sword. Why did he want it? So you become a warrior. Well, yeah, and because there was that guy who was, like, trashing his uh, abbey home. Yeah, and as we all know, you just get a big old sword, you can kill the hell out of anybody you want, including (laughs) an evil rat warlord. Yeah, apparently that's the way it works around here. So, but the Master System ended up coming out a couple years later in 1985 in Japan. It was the third iteration of Sega's technology. It was called the Model 3 or the Mach 3, Mark 3, one of those two. And it was roughly on par with the Famicom and the MSX2. And it was backward compatible with all of the legacy SG software. Which is a good so, idea. Yes. Uh, I think that its main benefit was that it had really nice colors, lots of good graphics, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, it was actually quite colorful. And even though we're not talking about SNES quality here by any means, we're t- we are talking about quite a bit more powerful than the NES. Uh, if you look at uh, certain adaptations of games, like the Master System version versus the NES version, uh, you will notice that the Master System version almost invariably has brighter sprites, bigger sprites. Uh, that sound chip took some getting used to, though. So Sega pushed the Master System pretty hard. It had a big marketing budget. It was appearing in all of the major shops, that kind of thing. It just had one problem, Nadia. <laughs> And that was Nintendo's extremely cutthroat and ruthless business policies. Yeah, they, they, they got pretty illegal at times. <laughs> well, I mean, there were talk of just oh going to shops and saying, oh, you're going to stock the competitor? Well, <laughs> we're just going to pull all of, our, all of our Nintendo stuff, and you're just not going to have anything, are you? And they're like, yeah. oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> totally legal, 100%. 
Yeah, there were strong-arming retailers. That's the thing that everybody just kind of forgets about Nintendo is just how freaking cutthroat they were in the 80s and 90s. And they were selling, signing uh, licensing agreements with third-party developers that basically completely precluded them from signing on to competing systems. So as a consequence, systems like the Sega Master System completely frozen out. Sega only had... Like, their, their third-party licensing, their studios included, like, freaking Parker Brothers. I mean, they had, like, two. <laughs> wow. Okay, I didn't know it was that bad. I knew it was bad in North America. I didn't realize. It was at the case in Japan as well, where they were competitors got strong-armed out of shops? Yeah, definitely. Sega tried to respond by creating its own games, but outside of its arcade catalog, I mean, games like Alex Kidd, frankly, just couldn't stand up to, you know, Mario. <laughs> No, uh, I don't have anything major against Alex Kidd, but the fact they reversed the controls just to be different, uh, that still gets on me. At a certain point, uh, Sega handed off the marketing to Tonka for some reason. and oh, Yes. There's a lot of innuendo about Tonka not knowing what to do with the Master System, but I think no. the writing was maybe on the wall by the time they handed it off in 1987, because by that time, Nintendo owned something like 83% of the market in the U.S. It was completely ridiculously successful, and there was just no coming back from that. No, it, it, that definitely was the major the, the major factor of why the Master System just did not gain a foothold in North America, although I will say uh, Tonka's box art for Master System games is legendarily bad. There is literally a game, I can't remember which one it was, someone will correct me on this immediately, where the box art is literally the uh, that crappy-ass looking grid paper background and a, a hand holding a card, a game card. I can't even remember what the game card is, but that is your box art. I must be weird because I remember seeing ads for games with that back grid background mm-hmm. and thinking, oh, man, that game has such a simple and basic screen uh, box art. It must be an amazing game. Don't ask me why I made that leap in logic. That is quite a leap in logic. That's a very interesting one because usually it's the opposite. Those things are exist to, to make us think, wow, this game must look so amazing, whereas it usually... <laughs> usually doesn't <laughs> it's such a good game it doesn't even need to sell itself it's just self-explanatory it, it's like that simpsons bit with the flim springfield they don't need to spell their name right <laughs> i in fact i think sega's motto was the only system where the games look as good as they do on the box so i mean <laughs> that tells well, you all you need to know they certainly chose a they chose a motto didn't they they sure did the Master System was extremely successful in the UK, Europe, and Brazil, and I think in many ways the Master System is better remembered in the UK than the NES is, and that's a lot, largely on Mattel, who did a terrible job of distributing the Nintendo through Europe. It was very expensive, it wasn't in shops, and the UK had come up on budget computing, they had a lot of different mm-hmm. competitors and games, they loved their ZX Spectrum, so... Oh yeah, if you insult the ZX Spectrum in front of an English person, they will they will skin you and have you and dunk your skin for tea. I have a lot of friends who are from Australia and the UK and they get extremely testy at the notion that Mario is the best or the most iconic because they're like screw that. Alex oh, yeah, Kidd all the way. Yeah, Britain. That or like Jet Set Willy or whoever the hell it was on the Spectrum. <laughs> so uh, what I'm saying is I'm basically judging your gaming tastes, UK. Come at me. <laughs> fun fact, though, Mattel distributed the uh, NES up here in Canada, too. And I guess they did a much better job of it. Did they? Okay. They did. I mean, yeah, it probably you... helped that it was in North America. It does. I mean, I, I guess I could be it. I- I'd really like to look into that sometime and just kind of find out what went right here versus you know the the Europe but of course I'm sure that we we definitely had more expensive stuff up here although probably nothing compared to the UK and god knows definitely not Australia it certainly helped in uh, the UK in particular that the master system had those really colorful graphics so games like fantasy zone really stood out right mm-hmm, definitely and, especially fantasy zone yes especially fantasy zone and then I mean, even here in the U.S., Siskel and Ebert apparently did a holiday special and recommended the Master System over the NES. Oh, really? Oh, can you imagine if if there was some sort of equivalent to that uh, in today's culture, like uh, (laughs) recommending the NES over the, uh, sorry, recommending the Master System over the NES? That started a war. 
In the meantime, on the Game Gear, the Game Gear came out in 1991. It was basically a portable Master System. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to convert Master System games over to the Game Gear, and it was designed in many ways in response to the Game Boy, which came out in 1989. It had a better form factor, had backlit screen and all that, but it was kind of killed by the whole battery problem. And also the Game Boy had such a massive foothold by 1989 that it was difficult, even with the success of the Sega Genesis, for Sega to be able to compete. They only ended up selling about 10 million units in the U.S. to the 118 million units the Game Boy sold. Yeah, the Game Boy kind of dominated that race. But um, I think it's also because it's uh, for a reason we we see here now in in this era where uh, Nintendo is working with lesser hardware, but uh, their first-party offerings just can't be beat compared to the competitors. Keeps them afloat a lot of the time. So I'll probably get into this um, a fair amount again with the Sega Genesis and the Saturn and the Dreamcast, but the Sega was an arcade developer, like even mm-hmm. more so than Nintendo. So Nintendo, they, they got their start with arcades in the games industry. Obviously, they had making, been making cards before that but and toys. They kind of left behind arcades at a certain point and focused pretty much exclusively on the home console business, especially by the 90s, right. um, outside of, you know, weird games like Killer Instinct and that kind of thing. <laughs> Whereas Sega, I think, put a lot more stock in the arcades than the NES, or than Nintendo. A lot of its biggest games were arcade first and then home versions, like Daytona yes. USA and such like that. Yeah, and um, I think in some ways that might have been their undoing on the Saturn, which is a... Uh, a theory I've heard because you'd be purchasing, sure, an arcade game, but let's face it, when you when you don't have uh, the delay of feeding millions of quarters into an arcade game, you're going to blow through it in two seconds. <laughs> no, that is that is true. And the arcades for so long, the reason you went to an arcade, at least in the U.S., was they had better graphics and they were more powerful. So you were getting an experience that you wouldn't be able to get at home. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, one of the reads, one of the results of this large focus on arcades was there weren't a whole lot of rpgs on sega games there were a lot of platformers and a lot of arcade games for the Mm -hmm. most part so actually the master systems rpg library quite thin there's only really one that we can really point to as maybe the big one the big contributor nadia and you actually played it not too long ago I did, if we are talking about the original Fantasy Star, and I don't know what else we could be talking about, that is the one. That is pretty much the one. And, not a, I mean, you know a fair amount about the original Fantasy Star at this point. I mean, just walk us through it really quickly. Uh, Fantasy Star is uh, it's a RPG that's actually quite different from other RPGs of the era, because uh, even though you do still kind of wield, like, swords and shields and, and what have you, the game takes place on the uh, planet of uh, Palma, which is a uh, more of a sci-fi planet than it is a um, than it is like a fantasy planet. And you actually do travel to different planets in the Algo system with a spaceship. You go to the spaceport and you board a spaceship to go to these different planets, and uh, you you deal with things like you know uh, supercomputers and, and climate control and, and things that just didn't show up much story-wise, uh, in games about, like, you know, slaying dragons and, and all of that. So, yeah, you were still kind of fighting monsters and had your uh, your basic attacks and magic spells and items the way you do in, in, in Dragon Warrior, except, of course, it had different terminologies. It had, uh, occasionally you would fight uh, aliens instead of, instead of uh, actual monsters. Uh, yeah, and it's still a pretty good solid rpg m2 recently released it for the sega ages line on the switch and there might be other systems too i can't remember right off the top of my head but uh yeah playing it with those modifications which include like uh, a mappable like mappable dungeons and uh higher uh experience drops higher item drops higher gold drops it's actually uh, just really interesting to look back at that game and see how different it was and how it uh, influenced uh, the Fantasy Star games to come. Only two days after, released only two days after the original Final Fantasy, I might. Oh, that's right. Is that like in the in Japan? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was praised for its grand sense of adventure due to its advanced visual effects and deep gameplay. And it also had a battery backup system, which a lot of people really liked. It was programmed in part by Yuji Naka, who would work Mm -hmm. on the Sonic games. And of course, Reiko Kodama, who is one of the absolute legends in all of RPG history. I want to say she worked on the Skies of Acadia games and many others. I'm Mm -hmm. sure we'll be talking a fair bit more about Reiko Kodama in this series. But it's a fantasy star became kind of Sega's calling card in the RPG space. It was basically their primary calling card. In some ways, it still is with Fantasy Star Online. But uh, one thing that kind of made me interested in the little bits I saw of Fantasy Star back in the day and through magazines and, and whatnot was uh, you play as Alice, a, a female hero. You don't get to do that in, in games of that era, usually. And I think it really stood out from other games because uh, so many games are trying to be Dragon Quest, and then here comes mm-hmm. Fantasy Star, which has this wonderful 80s manga feel in combination with being a sci-fi but also medieval kind of game. It was the extremely terrible uh, Star Ocean games, but done right. (laughs) Ooh, spicy. (laughs) Star Ocean is just a low-rent fantasy star. Sorry, guys. Don't at cat. So I didn't know this, Nadia, but apparently Fantasy Star also made its way over to the Game Gear in the form of Fantasy Star Gaiden, and it was absolutely nothing like Fantasy Star. Yeah, I um, I'd have never gotten to play Fantasy Star Gaiden myself, but I hear it's kind of terrible. Yeah, it's very grindy, doesn't yeah. have basically any ties to the main series, and it's a very generic fantasy RPG. So, yeah. what a shame. It's a shame. It is yeah. a shame, because Fantasy Star, their whole thing is, you know, not being like a typical RPG, uh, at least thematically. Uh, I will say the original Fantasy Star, if you, don't play the, if you don't play the M2 version, you will be grinding for the rest of your life. <laughs> Nadia, do you consider the Wonder Boys series an RPG? Um, not really, but sure. Given that I see they, a lot of people kind of put that under the RPG catalog. I thought it was just kind of a platformer, like an expanded platformer. It was. I just know it as a as a platforming series. Uh, I mean, I'm not like a hardcore Wonder Boy fan, but playing through Monster Boy and the Cursed Kingdom. That was very, sure, you had your, you know, a couple of upgradable things, but it was still very much more of a Metroidvania than it was an RPG. But given how thin the pickings were on the on the Master System and the Game Gear, I guess they were just like, eh, whatever. It's an RPG now. You are promoted. A few more RPGs that came out from the Master System. There was Ultima Four. Which is famously yeah. based around the Eight Virtues. Uh, it's one of the classic RPGs, maybe the second best game in the Ultima series after Ultima 7. And uh, a version came out on the NES, which we already talked about. This one's considered more accurate than the NES version. Yeah, the um, this is interesting. And that's something I learned about recently was the uh, there are two, vision, two versions are very different because the Japanese, sorry, the NES version is published by a Japanese publisher that is uh, Pony Canyon. And I think uh, Lord British himself uh, worked on the port for the Master System. I might be wrong about that, but it was Western for sure. There was a game called Miracle Warriors, okay, which was one of the many, many Dragon Quest clones out there. Uh, And I had a few technical flourishes that made it kind of cool. The graphics were pretty nice once you were in the actual battle system. Very detailed enemies when you were fighting that first-person view. There was kind of a cool little thing where while you were walking, the horizon would be scrolling and such. Mm -hmm. Annoying thing in the battle system, when you're attacking one enemy, only a party member attacks one enemy at a time, and they just fight back and forth until one is dead. So you can't gang up on an enemy. You just have one party member fighting one monster. Ugh, that's terrible. Why have multiple party members then? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. (laughs) But there's a reason that it's forgotten, because it wasn't that good. (laughs) Because it sucked. (laughs) Because they made you fight one-on-one, even though you didn't have to. Was everyone else, like, in your party just, like, kicking back with margaritas? Well, you you got this. I guess, good good job. Maybe they just figured that, well, you know, in a battle scenario, everybody picks one enemy and they're fighting it, right? Yeah, but someone's got to be done early. (laughs) 
E's Vanished Omen came out in 1988 on the Master right. System, about one year after it first came out on the PC. And if you're really into E's, I want to recommend playing the original one for the Master System because it's really not that good. Yeah, I don't recommend a lot of the early E's games, frankly. Most of them have been remade uh, several times and are on Steam, they're on Switch, they're on PS4, they're everywhere you want to be. You don't need to go back to... I guess if you're desperate, you can go back via mobile, which has some Ease games on it as they were originally presented. And uh, they're fine, they're, they're interesting in a historical standpoint, but they, they're not very much fun compared to the, the remakes and the newer games. Yeah, the I mean, it's kind of weird because the combat is the character bumping into an enemy. Yes. He just bang into an enemy and like, uh, it's not even like, oh, you have to, you know, here's my sword. You have to run to my sword. No, it's just bodily running into this enemy and hopefully overcoming them before they overcome you and then doing it all again. Fun. Fun. And then you wait and wait and wait on the, st- on the map while your energy slowly replenishes and you do it again. And yet, this was more accessible than a lot of RPGs in the late 80s. I, I guess so, but who was desperate to know, who was like just like stumped by what a sword does? <laughs> we were very sad people in the late 80s, Nadia. <laughs> just playing these RPGs where characters bump into one another until they're dead. It's like, sorry, the game. <laughs> I think that the ultimately the game carrier had a much better RPG legacy than the Master System. That's, I mean... Okay, so the Master System had Fantasy Star, which was by far the most important of any of the games between these two. Mm -hmm. But by and large, there were maybe better games on the Game Gear, and I think that's probably because RPGs had developed a bit more by the early 90s, and that you started to see some good ports making their way over to the Game Gear. We already mentioned Fantasy Star Guide N, which is not good, but there was also a a number of Shining Force games. Okay, There were, yes. Which did uh, ultimately make their way over. What were you going to say, Nadia? Oh, I was going to say that was one of the reasons I really did want uh, a Game Gear. Because I really wanted to to get into Shining Force. Those games looked... I guess they were just really well engineered for a system like the Game Gear. Which doesn't, uh, you know, maybe can't really display a lot of moving parts at once. But it can give you big, bright graphics. And, of course, uh, Shining Force has those with the portraits and, and all of that. Yeah, in case you don't know about the Shining Force series, it was kind of Sega's answer to the Fire Emblem series. It was a strategy uh-huh. RPG. Um, the interesting thing about the Shining Force for the Game Gear, it was, it was totally focused on combat. So you're kind of doing away with the exploration of its forerunners. Um, one of the key differences was that enemies don't a counterattack and turns aren't strict fa- player enemy phase. So the mm-hmm. flow of the combat's a little bit different. Uh, Sword of Heja, which is generally regarded as one of the best ones, it actually is out on the 3DS eShop, so if you ever want to play oh. it, you totally can. Oh, I might do that. I like, like looking back at retro RPGs that are decent. Uh, I mean, it's kind of been lost to history a little bit, but uh, as far as good RPGs go, I mean, that is perhaps one of them. Another thing that was kind of interesting, did you know that the Mega Ten series made its way over to the Game Gear? I actually did not know that. That's, uh, that's very interesting. So there is a, an offshoot of the Mega Ten series called Megami Tensei Last Bible. Oh. And this is kind of weird. So the original Megami Tensei, as we discussed in the last episode, or the NES, was based on the novel. Whereas right. Megami Tensei Gaiden, Last Bible, is I would say more of a fantasy kind of thing. It takes place in a medieval fantasy world. Instead of demons, you have monsters. Uh, Famitsu compared it more to Final Fantasy than anything. So uh, some, some, some fairly similar concepts. Uh, First-person dungeon crawler. Uh, there's a monster fusion system and that kind of thing. But it's meant to be for a broader audience, I would say. Yeah, I was going to say, you're, I don't know if they ever released it in the West. I don't think they ever did. But if they were going to try, they would... Uh... I don't know if back then demon summoning and all of the good stuff that uh, Shin Megami Tensei is known for would have flown during during the height of the satanic panic. <laughs> Most people know about Last Bible through the Game Boy if they know about it at all. And actually, the best Last Bible game was Last Bible 3, which came out on the Super Famicom. Whereas Megami Ten- Last Bible 1 came out on the Game Gear 
and it was a thing. <laughs> it looked better, <laughs> obviously, than the Game Boy version because it had color. Mm-hmm. But so. uh, were all the last Bible games uh, about, like, monsters instead of demons? Yes, yes. It was just its own thing. Oh, okay. Huh, that's interesting. I guess they were all kind of medieval, so almost like a, uh, we're not so confident in our, uh, kind of weird modern setting, so here you go if you're really into fantasy RPG version of Shin Megami Tensei. Well, Megami Tensei has always had a lot of different spinoffs, and we... True. <laughs> they've got into idol stuff, and high schools, and samurais in post-apocalyptic Tokyo. I mean, they've gone in a lot of different directions. Yeah, I kind of... I, ca- I can't believe I just forgot about, like, for even a second about uh, the idol spinoff on Wii U. <laughs> <laughs> How could I forget? This is one that I has definitely forgotten, but it was really pretty when I was looking at it. It's almost to the point of being 16-bit. And mm-hmm. it's called uh, Royal Stone, which is yet another strategy RPG for the Game Gear. I encourage you to take a look at some of the pictures. It is really colorful and very pretty. Yeah, I actually looked at that. It was uh, it's It's really nice. And like I said, I think strategy like slower games in general really shown on the game gear which is good because uh, that system had a bad case of, of screen blur <laughs> and interestingly enough there was also a game called defenders of oasis which has no relationship to beyond oasis which is a much more famous series for the sega genesis yeah so this yeah. one was known as shadam crusader in japan it drew heavily from the book of 1001 nights it had that Arabian Nights kind of look to it. You would think that they were part of the same series, but no, they are not. In fact, yeah. Defenders of Oasis, instead of being an action game, it's a turn-based RPG. It tells a fairly typical story of light and dark. It's mm-hmm. pretty. It is pretty. I will say that for it. But the whole Defenders, the whole Oasis thing is a little weird because, I mean, just to begin with, it was more Norse-inspired in Japan, wasn't it? And they made it like Defenders of Oasis here and made it, I guess to make it sound Arabian for some reason, like to <laughs> capitalize off Aladdin, maybe? It would have been around the right time. Uh, maybe. No, that's an interesting idea. Somehow I doubt it, though. Yeah, and then, uh, as you said, like Defenders of Oasis on the Game Gear just tried to tie it in, tie it in through that name, and it's just not similar at all. Hmm. I mean, that's a little like Fantasy Star Guide in, right? I mean, it has yeah. the name Fantasy Star, but it's like, this is not Fantasy Star. <laughs> Stop lying to me, games. Beyond that, there were a lot of kind of top-down action games. Uh, there were several games for the Master System that people were like, oh, this is an RPG. And I'm like, this looks like a beat-em-up. <laughs> it's like a side-scrolling <laughs> beat-em-up. Now, I would play a Streets of Rage uh, RPG in two seconds. There was Dragon Crystal. It looked kind of like Zelda, but, you know, you're collecting gold and food and potions, yeah. that sort of thing. It was just kind of the era, right? So those were the yeah. kinds of games coming out on it. But, uh, I mean... Ultimately, like looking at the legacy of the Master System and the Game Gear, I mean, the Master System gave us Fantasy Star. Woo! Absolutely, 100%. Why do you suppose that the Game Gear and the Master System didn't have that strong of an RPG legacy, especially compared to some of the later Sega, Sega systems like the uh, Sega Saturn? I, I don't know, thinking about it, because... Uh... I mean, there was, of course, we already discussed how the these early Sega systems didn't get much of a foothold uh, in most territories, barring, you know, Europe and South America. Uh, but even so, I would expect that we would have seen more, like, Dragon Quest imitators on, you know, either system. But that was just never the case. And um, I guess it, it could go back to the whole thing with Sega being uh, an arcade developer, first and foremost. Maybe they're just, you know, weren't really encouraging people to maybe they just weren't like, hey, come bring your RPGs over here, because they themselves aren't making too many RPGs other than Fantasy Star. Uh, I I don't know if there's a a, a good reason staring me at the face, but I can't really think of one. I think it's because, for a few reasons, I think a lot of the best RPG developers were developing exclusively for the NES. Oh, right, and the whole strong arm thing we discussed. (laughs) Yeah, And it wasn't until, uh, you know, the subsequent consoles that Sega was able to break into Nintendo's Monopoly and start mm-hmm. being able to get versions of one game released for their console as well as Nintendo's consoles. So that didn't help. That and then helped. when Sega was developing its own games, I mean, it did make Fantasy Star and it did make Shining Force ultimately, but Sega was always an arcade developer more than anything, much yeah. in the same yeah. way that, you, I mean, 
you don't see many RPGs from Nintendo, right? I mean, That's even true. games like Intelligence, even games like Fire Emblem and Pokemon were made by Game Freak and Intelligent Systems. They are not strictly speaking That's in-house true. Nintendo companies. So, and same with the uh, Xeno, uh, Xenoblade Saga. That's uh, Monolith Soft. Yeah. So Nintendo would bring these RPGs kind of into the fold through second-party development, but you would never. But you don't really see you know, EAD or any of those making their own RPGs. So, right. And that's because I think Nintendo like Sega had that very strong kind of arcade roots is which is why they kind of made their name in shoot 'em ups and platformers and other games that played extremely well early on, on systems, but didn't have as much as of a focus on RPGs. So mm-hmm. that's why I think that when you look, when it comes down to it, I mean, there's a reason that the most popular and famous RPG to come out of the Master System was developed by Sega <laughs> itself. <laughs> That's true, yes. That's the Master System and the Game Gear. I mean, not too much more to cover on these two little systems. I think that the Master System in particular is still beloved in Brazil and in Europe. Not as much in North America, but... Uh, you know, it's it's a worthy console. It had had its good times. It was more powerful yeah. than the Famicom in some ways, and and the Game Gear was a cool little footnote as well. Do you have fond memories of playing games on the Sega Master System uh, or the Game Gear? Did you play any of the RPGs that we talked about, or is there any that we missed? You should drop me a line at cat.bailyusgamer.net or leave a note in our show notes. But in the meantime, we're going to move on to the mailbag. One of the hard things about running an RPG podcast, Nadia, is I think that you can only really go on your own experiences, and RPGs are such a time-consuming and in, a genre that demands so much investment that it can be hard to cover the entire broad canvas of the genre. So yeah. you just naturally end up specializing either in Western RPGs or JRPGs, mm. or you have your particular favorite series, but you don't know other series as well. It's a lot harder oh, yeah. than if you're, say talking about platformers or a lot of different other games that's true yeah it's uh as much as i love the genre there are i have so many gaps in it because it's like okay well i gotta find 100 hours to play this one now i guess well one of the things that i really like about this console rpg quest series so far is that it's giving us a chance to delve into stuff that we've never really delved into before. So we're mm-hmm. getting a little bit of our, out of our comfort zone and talking about stuff like the Master System and the Intellivision and all that. And I'm really looking forward to talking about <laughs> weird things like the PC Engine and, you know, the, the Sega Saturn and all that stuff. So Oh, yeah, PC Engine. That's going to be interesting. I'm really looking forward to talking about the PlayStation 2. Weirdly, I, don't, I don't feel like we've talked about the PlayStation 2 nearly enough. No, and the PlayStation 2 is going to be a strange one for me because that is like a, a bit of a gap in my own uh, gaming history. Uh, I can't wait to be talking about the 3DO's RPG. I have no idea if it has any RPG history. I got to do research on that one. Man, 3DO. All right, let's get to the mailbag. Last week, as you know, we continued our console RPG quest with the NES. And Pandalol says, I discovered the original Final Fantasy through the Nintendo Power Strategy Guide. I poured through that guide for months and months before I could ever get the game. That was a brilliant move on Square's part, as I was hooked on the game long before I could even get my hands on it, like a year later at a flea market. No box, manual, just the cart. I've seen a Square devotee ever since good times and bad times. My buddy had gotten Dragon Warrior before then, but I just couldn't get into it for whatever reason. I think it's the first person battle system and single character that didn't quite do it for my 10-year-old brain. I even tried to delve into the Ultimate games on there. The Heart Lady comment brought back memories I'd forgotten. I was a lot of wandering around, not a lot of accomplishing anything. And a fun call-out to 8-Bit Theater. Clevenger writes the Atomic Robo comic book, now also publishes a webbook comic, which is quite a bit of fun as well. Yeah, one thing that I feel like Nintendo Power doesn't get enough credit for, even though it is regarded as a kind of a, a glorified commercial, which in a lot of ways it was, let's face it, but Final Fantasy and other RPGs, which had these massive, um, for the time, strategy guides, uh, was they were illustrated with some really nice art that was very unique to Nintendo Power, and uh, as far as I know, it's never been emulated or duplicated anywhere else. Rider Kicker says, If I can name the one thing about Japanese 
role-playing games that pulls me in more often than Western RPGs. It has to be the graphical design. Truth be told, I'm a boorish lout that is still drawn in to bright colors and needs something easy to keep my attention. Kat is right about how Western role-playing games were based on tabletop experience full of obvious complexity that can shut away many people at first glance. I am happy that Dragon Quest came into prominence in Japan as a marker of software design because the very streamlined adventure inspired many developers to do, to try to do more with less. And yeah, I agree with that. I think that's the secret to the success of RPGs in Japan and the reason that they ultimately were able to break out here was that they were designed for consoles. They weren't just ported over to consoles, right? Yeah, because a lot of the um, older RPGs that we've covered already, uh, like several of them have, were just ports. And I'm sure when we get to the SNES, we'll talk about some of the weird Amiga ports that made it there. I mean, you just take a comparison of the original Dragon Quest with a contemporary RPG like Ultima, and you see what like Richard Garriott was trying to do. He was trying to do everything with Ultima 4. He wanted that to be the everything yes. RPG in the 1980s, whereas Dragon Quest told a very straightforward story with cute characters and a fairly easy-to-understand battle system by its time. Yeah, uh, Dragon Quest, I remember being blown away because it had like a grand total of one sub-quest, and it, uh, to me, like, as a little girl, I was like, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> Killer Dark says, really enjoyed this trip down memory lane. I was lucky and my dad liked RPGs and got me into them. He taught me how to grind ogres for him in FF1 before I could even read. <laughs> he had both Dragon <laughs> Warrior 1 and Final Fantasy 1 on NES, and I loved playing them and watching him play. As I grew up, we ended up buying and playing through all four Dragon Warrior games. I also remember accidentally ruining his wizardry save file by playing it Ooh. and getting all his characters killed while he was at work. Oh, man, that's brutal. Oh, that is brutal. I was uh, going to say, I actually really love the way that your dad just used you as, like, hired child labor for, uh, you know, most <laughs> parents are like, oh, go get me a beer or whatever. But, like, you know, your dad was like, oh, go grind these ogres for me. <laughs> and then I guess you uh, kind of paid him back by uh, killing his wizardry file. So good job. Oh, man. That reminds me of my sister killing my Pokemon file back in the day. Oh, no. Was it an accident? Nah, she was just mean. Oh, no. That's that's so terrible. I'm sorry. My brother did that to me once because he thought it'd be funny. Or he tried to, anyway. He just kind of tried to corrupt my uh, Zelda save file. Yeah, she wanted to play Pokemon, so she started playing it without mm, telling me. And uh -huh. then she saved the game. Well, there's only one save file. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, cat. That's traumatic. Uh, Game That Tune says, I remember my uncle bringing me this loose NES cart called Final Fantasy. I was excited to get a new game, but I had no idea what it was in for. I popped in, and it was both enthralled and puzzled. I had never experienced a game like this before. A game where you have a party of characters, wander around, fight monsters, and all sorts of stuff. I was a little too young to really understand it and put that down for a few years. I eventually came back to it with that neat Nintendo Power Guide and had a fantastic time. I did, too, something really silly. I'd gone to the end dungeon and just couldn't get very far, so I grinded and grinded and grinded until my eyes bled. Three of my characters were doing fine, but my Grandmaster wasn't doing great. And then I realized, I had my Grandmaster equipped with a weapon. How foolish. Oh, no. Don't do that. This martial arts master doesn't need a lightning hammer. I unequipped his weapon, and he started wrecking monsters and ultimately ended up beating Chaos in four turns. Oh, what a blunder. It wasn't perfect, but I shaped my fondness for RPGs. That is uh, that is pretty funny. Uh, yeah, I think the Grandmaster, if you don't equip it, him with a weapon, like he'll just start hitting for like 20 times or something crazy like that. Huberus says, I'll make the hot take. I thought the first Dragon Warrior was all around a better game than the first Final Fantasy and more fun to go back to and revisit too. The developers translated Toriyama's artwork incredibly well for the, SNES, for the NES's limitations, far better than Squaresoft did for Amano's. As Nadia mentioned, the Dragon Warrior series had more fun with their world than Final Fantasy did, and for me personally, I enjoyed that Dragon Warrior didn't involve parsing who can use what gear, paying for spells, and hoping that my characters don't randomly whiff their attacks or attack nothing at all. Yeah, I really, really hated that about Final Fantasy. Uh, you, It was extremely rare to miss attacks in uh, Dragon Warrior, and if you did miss an attack... It was usually because, hey, this character is way more powerful than you. Get the hell out of here while you still can. In Final Fantasy, um, could be because the game was bugged to hell, but it just seemed like you missed all the damn time. Axel's Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Make sure to follow us on all the social media channels. Subscribe to our newsletter if you're enjoying the console RPG quest, which we are now just finished our third episode of that. Please let us know. 
We'll see if we come back to it next week. I think that it's almost time, Nadia, to do our E3 preview. Oh, geez. Every time like someone says to me, hey, E3 is coming up, I just kind of, I'm still thinking in terms of, oh, it's months away, but no, it's not months away. It is two weeks from now. Oh my God, kill me now. Yeah, it's pretty tough, and there are a lot of interesting games coming up, including Final Fantasy VII Remake and Cyberpunk and Pokemon, so lots of RPGs to discuss, I gotta say. Yes, I am looking forward to it. Looking forward to seeing what comes out of the show, because even though the first half of 2019 has been a little sparse, uh, I think the back half is going to be quite loaded. I've been looking at my schedule for E3 and just kind of having mild panic attacks. Yeah, it's about that time, isn't it? Yeah, I just keep getting important uh, important appointments that I need to squeeze in somewhere and thinking to myself, where the hell am I going to squeeze this in? <laughs> well, there there will come a time, maybe soon, where eventually your heart will just give out and be like, you know what? Screw it. It's going to happen no matter what I do. So I'll just ride this through. <laughs> All right, folks, we'll be back next week as always. And for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. And until next time, happy adventuring.